Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast, a weekly show featuring B2B sales leaders and executives. Hosted by five-time CRO John McMahon and force management co-founder John Kaplan, the show goes behind the scenes with the people who have been there, done that, and seen the results. If you enjoy our content, please subscribe, rate, and review the show to help us reach more people. Revenue Builders is brought to you by Force Management. We help companies improve sales performance, executing the growth strategy at the point of sale. Find us at forcemanagement.com. Enjoy today's episode. Welcome to the Revenue Builders Podcast. I'm John McMahon, and I'm accompanied today by John Kaplan, the co-founder of Force Management. Cap, what's up, buddy? Hey, buddy. Uh, I hope you're doing great. I love this segment today because it's really going to focus in on elite execution. So I'm ready to go. Your voice still sounds really good, John. <laughs> sounds good. Yeah. Sorry about that, buddy. I was screaming yeah. over the weekend at the Michigan game in Houston, and it just oh, makes sure. your makes your voice yeah. a little bit lower. People love your voice, man. So thanks, it's a buddy. It's a radio voice for a podcast. So, Cap, today our guest is John Donnelly. He's the CRO at DTIQ. And John started his career in sales at Backman and Intellicorp before he moved to a company named Scion to run Eastern Sales prior to the acquisition of Scion by CA. And after CA, better known as Computer Associates, John became the VP of Sales at Kabira prior to the acquisition of Kabira by Tibco. And after Tibco, John was the VP of Worldwide Sales at SubX for three years becoming before becoming the VP of Worldwide Sales at Interwise. And that was prior to the acquisition of Interwise by AT&T, where John became the VP of Sales and Business Development. Now, after AT&T, John became the VP of Global Sales and Marketing at Metacarta prior to the acquisition of Metacarta by Nokia. And after Nokia, John became the VP of Global Sales and Marketing for Cisco, where he was in charge of selling the Cisco Network Services Manager product. After Cisco, John became the Executive Vice President of Global Sales, Marketing, and Business Development for Kazing, where John stayed for a couple of years before moving to Crimson Hexagon as the Senior VP of Global Sales and Marketing for three and a half years, before joining Titan Cloud Software as the Chief Revenue Officer. John went on to be a co-founder at E2Log for a couple of years before accepting his current role as the Chief Revenue Officer at DTIQ. Hey, welcome, John Donnelly. How are you? Good. How are you guys doing today? You're doing good. Cap, say hi to John. John, really, really good to meet you, brother. Heard a lot about you. Thanks for joining us. You as well. And that John has a mission. Go blue, Go blue <laughs> brother. Go blue. Go right, right here, baby. Right there. Amen. Yeah. Good hey, John. So thanks for joining us and, uh, you know, going over your CV or your resume. I don't think we've had any guest on the podcast that's been acquired as many times as you have in your career, like, <laughs> I think five times. So after so many acquisitions, can you share any lessons you learned on being acquired or the difficulties of integrating a new business or how to make M&A work better or any of those types of aspects that come to mind? Sure. I, I think a lot of times when, when people are in, you know, smaller businesses, you know, sub 100 million and they're, and they're looking to, to grow their business and uh, obviously execute plan A, um, I, always, I always felt like, you know, when you, when you do that and do well, 
you know, acquisitions happen, you know, relatively naturally as uh, as, as investors look to to get businesses liquid. And I, I think the key thing, you know, when you're being acquired, obviously, is to just, you know, execute your business. And uh, if things are going well and you're continuing to grow a profitable, healthy business, you know, good things typically happen. And as you guys well know, the public markets are so hard now to to kind of, you know, go public and to sustain that. It's uh, the way for investors to, to make money is obviously to try to get uh, a business acquired at some point. So I think, you know, being both acquired and, and acquiring businesses, I think the key thing is to ensure that, um, you know, the fit is good culturally, that the the business model aligns effectively. And I think especially when you're when you're acquiring a business, as, as we've done here at TTIQ and in other places, uh, making sure that uh, that alignment of the op- operationally is done really effectively and quickly so that the businesses are, um, you know, kind of performing in a way that the acquirer I'm sorry that the investors felt would would work when they first did the acquisition. So I think those things are critical to success. And um, again, I've seen it seen it done well and seen it not done well. Um, and and certainly, um, I guess the best example is when you know when you get acquired by somebody like a Cisco or a larger company, they have it wired very tightly. They know exactly how to do it. Um, you know, smaller companies I think you know will can struggle with that. So it's just key to have you know um, engineering and sales and marketing and HR all aligned to. To make sure that the people getting acquired feel welcomed and feel part of the um, the new company as quickly as possible. Yeah, but a lot of times, John, like I've been acquired a couple times, and you talked a little bit about fit culturally. You know, you get a really large company that's a multi billion dollar revenue company taking over, let's say, a hundred million dollar software company or hardware company. It's really difficult to fit culturally because they're just almost two completely different cultures. One is the relative startup, maybe not public, or maybe just went public. So essentially still a raw startup compared to the really large company. So I've always found that it's kind of been the cultures just don't fit at all. It's, and they, and it's the hard. smaller company kind of tends to get overwhelmed by so many people in so many different roles in the bigger company that all want a piece of this little small company. That's right. That's right. And I think a lot of people too, they're they're wired for a certain type of business. I mean, obviously, when you think about a lot of people that that I had on my team, for example, at Cisco, you know, would I bring them to where I am today? And the answer is probably no, because culturally they're they're just used to so much process and so much um operation that goes on that um, you know, it's it's a well-oiled machine and, and some people just do better in a more rugged kind of make things happen way. Um, and, and again, I think, you know, it's, it's hard to go from one to the other. I've done both. I think it's, um, you know, a, a job like that in a bigger company is uh, obviously more of a cog in a wheel and you're making things happen and all that great stuff. But when you're in a smaller business, you know, from 50 million to 250 million, something like that, and that's kind of where we sit, um, you know, you're still doing a lot of things that really have an impact on the business. And uh, you feel like you're making progress every day, which I think is great. And um, obviously, you know, you don't move like a battleship in a, a battleship in a harbor. I think with a bigger company, so in a smaller company, you can you can pivot if you need to as well. Yeah, I also found just one one more thing on that, Johnny. Please, sorry. I also found that at least when I would go to make sales calls, the and go with the people from the big bigger company after being acquired is, I'm starting to ask executives, you know, real business questions. And when I would come out of the meeting, the salespeople and the leader from the bigger company would be kind of mad at me. Why would you ask him those tough questions, which to me was more natural business questions, because all they're trying to do is maintain a relationship, B2B, 
be nice and be a friend, be a friend and have a friendly relationship where I was trying to go in and figure out, you know, is there an area in here we, where we actually might be able to help this person in their business? That's right. That's right. Felt like it was two different perspectives, at least for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think, again, bigger companies, people are are doing a lot more COI, CYA activities in, in a lot of cases, as opposed to really making an impact and having that um, ability to to drive some type of, you know, KPI within their business. So again, I think some people were able to go back and forth. I've been able to do it a couple of times, but it's not for everybody. We just acquired a business um, in Australia about a little over a year ago. And um, I, just the geographic differences there are difficult. People don't think about that sometimes, but it really truly is because of the time zone. And so mm-hmm. how do you align and how do you adjust as a US-based company to accommodate for that? So we've done a lot of things where we do late night calls, early morning calls. So it's not just about them having to adjust their life because we, we you know, it's not fair. But try to be much more equitable about how you communicate it, you know, is very, very important so that it's not just on our time, but kind of, you know, our time together. And so we've done that effectively. Um, and, you know, obviously it gets people out of bed early or go to bed late, but um, you got to do that to make something work, especially when you think about the geography of it. So, John, I, um, uh, with all your great background and experience, I'm thinking about some advice that I got one time to the acquired and to the acquired, the advice was be the same. And this is also advice for people that have acquiring and they're going into companies if they have to, you know, take a significant position inside of a company and try to, you know, you're going to be part of the leadership team or what have you. There's a saying that says, be the same before you're different. Does that resonate for you? Could you comment on that? Yeah, I, I think I think that's very, very relevant. I think in terms of, you know, what, if a company had success doing what they were doing, they don't need to evolve into something different. They want to keep doing what they're doing well and keep that consistent, um, you know, growth strategy that they had. And I think that's the key thing in terms of how, like, how does a big company absorb that, right? And I think that the we're, we're, the, we're the company acquiring businesses on our side now, and as you bring people in, I want them to still operate in a way that's very, very flexible um, because they've had success doing it. And so if we try to get them to do things just our way, I think it stunts their ability to grow as they as they got um, bigger and got acquired, because obviously they were acquired for a reason. We felt their business was a really good synergistic fit for us, um, complementary technology that we weren't going to build ourselves. And so how do we get, you know kind of enable them and let them be who they are, I think is really important. And obviously over time, um, you know, over you know, a five-year period or something, sure, eventually people kind of, you know, mold more into where they've come to. But um, I think in the first couple of years, which is the really critical time after an acquisition, where you want to continue that uh, momentum, you let them do their thing. And I think that's something where, um, you know, a lot of companies don't do well with that. Cisco, um, when we did it there, you know, we were operating as an overlay role. So I think that worked out for a while. But again, it gets confusing. In our case, as we've acquired businesses, we tried to, again, let them you know, operate as as best they can as they have been before, and uh, and again, let them do their thing. And because they were in a startup for a reason, they like that flexibility of uh, being able to you know make change and do things quickly. Well yeah. said. So, John, also as many times you've been acquired, you also have walked in to a new company as a new CRO. And when you typically and you have experience doing this because you've done it a number of times. What typically are the top three things you want to know when you walk in on day one? Well, I think one of the things I did, obviously, I mean, I know it's probably been said before, but I think the first thing you do, obviously, is just listen, just figure out kind of what's going on, get the lay of the land and figure out 
you know, what your team looks like, um, who the top customers are, and really get a sense of, you know, what the business kind of pulse is, so to speak. So I spent the first 90 days doing that and really trying to understand, you know, where the key the key elements of, uh, of growth were and where we needed help. Because again, I think in, in, like in anything, when you come in as a new person and you inherit a team, um, it's important to, to, to recognize that regardless of how much experience you have, you have to come in and realize this company has built itself up. There's a business here. There's people here. Um, how do you come in and uh, and not be disruptive, especially initially? Come in and really listen and and really uh, you know be kind of a, a, a trusted advisor, figuring out what's going on first before you make any kind of actions that uh, could obviously be change change because change I think for anybody is is difficult. So I did that, and then you know for about ninety days, and then in Q two, I started to make some changes that, that I felt the business needed in terms of uh, you know better accountability on forecasting, better pipeline and deal management. Just tried to improve things because obviously when you come into a, a fiscal year there's already a plan in place there's already a team in place how do you get the best and the most out of that team while making changes in a way that um you know has positive impact and doesn't negatively impact uh things along the way to try to you know maintain the momentum so i've done that a few times and i think that works and um and obviously it's 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 getting close to the leaders close to the top performance to figure out how what they're doing well um is that being communicated well and, the, and in the case of dtiq um, I found there were a lot of, um, you know, silos of data, silos of information, even in a 500-person company, as small as we are, um, but well, I guess a mid-sized company, I guess you'd call us, about a $70 million business. So, um, but the idea was to, you know, obviously continue that momentum and just try to get just general collaboration, general um, communication more effective, which which we've done, which I think was a lot of, lot of, lot of uh, causing some impact in terms of, uh, or stunting some growth issues. So I think that helped a lot just to try to, Communicate more effectively. And again, always sounds sounds um, kind of basic, but a lot of companies just don't collaborate well across groups, and sometimes just do their own thing, and they don't wind up with the same exact exact uh, objectives in place. You know. So this yeah. scenario, this scenario, I really like uh, John and John, and it's really a good uh, kind of de- definition or explanation of what I was just asking about of be the same before you're different. When you come into what you've done so many times, come into an organization that you're inheriting, I see people make mistakes and they try, let me try to establish myself based upon how different I am from you. And I, I always felt like they just, they did it wrong. They're trying to make all these changes and they haven't even listened. They haven't even understood what's going on. They haven't even attempted to be a part of the culture. When I went out to Germany, I learned this the hard way because I was coming in as an American and, and somebody gave me that advice is dude, figure out how to be the same before you try to establish your difference. And I just, I love how you just highlight it. You go in and you listen and you understand what they're struggling with and you understand what their burdens are and you try to tweak things before you, you know, there's already a plan in place. I thought that was an awesome explanation of that. I appreciate that. And I, and I, and I think ultimately too, the, uh, the business we have, you know, I, I tell people all the time, yes, I've got this organization, but ultimately like I work for you. I mean, this is a team sport. We work together um, and obviously in big companies, there's a lot more structure in our company. You know, there's, there's our investors, our board, there's, our, there's my boss, our CEO, there's myself, and then there's, you know, a leadership team, and then there's everybody else. So we've kept it relatively flat. And so I keep telling people, especially on the sales side, you know, do not be afraid to ask for help regardless of the deal side. Just let's ask for help. You know, I work for you, like I'll help you out and, and just try to be more, um, you know, kind of just advisor and counsel on deal. Cause obviously I've been doing this for a long time and, and I think I can help in any way, but um, just, just, just kind of enable the team to feel like, Hey, you can ask any question. You can, 
always ask for help, regardless of the fact that, you know, you're a 25 year old salesperson and I've been doing this for a long time and I'm older than that. Um, but the reality is I want them to feel like they can always just come for advice. And hopefully I've seen the movie somewhere before and can add some advice and get them to, to do things maybe in a more streamlined way. And again, every company is different. Their, their sales uh, motion is different, uh, regardless of where you worked, right? You, you guys have all worked at you know great, great, great successful companies, and you know that. And so the reality is that you come into a company, if you come in like a bull in a china shop, um, it's a pretty big turnoff, right? I wouldn't want that done to me. I wouldn't want to do it to other people. So really come in, you go through that listening tour, and then figure out where you can, where you can adjust. And, and I think over time, you... Um, you get your, you kind of get your hands in the reins. Like picking out small victories, right? You're looking for that's little right. wins that that's establish right. that, your right. credibility. I like that a lot. That's right. And in fact, in fact, one of our, I think our largest global customer, which is RBI over in, uh, in Europe, which you know is the largest Burger King um, franchise owner in the world. Um, they basically are our largest customers. As I said, I, you know, I want to meet them, you know, kind of as early as I could understand, you know, why have they bought, what's their relationship been and really try to get into not just them, but other customers to figure out, what their buyer's journey was, what's good, what's bad. And really, you know, when you come in as a new guy, they tell you a lot more information because there's nothing, you know, there's nothing behind, there's no deal behind it. It's more like, you know, what's working, how is support working with you? How is services working with you? Really figure out what's right, what's wrong, and how we can how we can affect it and change it. Um, and again, they're more open. I think you should come in and just ask questions about um, how they feel about their relationship with DTIQ. Because we've had customers that have been around for 10, 12 plus years um, in different variations of the platform. So, you know, they've seen the platform grow and improve and and change. And so, you know, are we, you know, staying up to speed with you know what they what they're what they care about um is really important for me just to hopefully get a pulse to the market. Because if you have a bigger team and a lot of salespeople, you want to make sure you're really um, you know, especially listening to what customers are are saying and how they're you know, leveraging the platform for sure. You just gave a huge nugget. I want to give it a shout out real quick. Just make sure everybody heard that. Um, <laughs> one of the best ways for you to get grounded in an outside in, most leaders come in and they're getting inundated with inside out. Like this is how we run the company. This is how we do our stages. This is all the product, blah, blah, blah. I found that the leaders that come in and try to go outside in first and they go to customers and they ask customers, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with you because they know you're new. Hey, and I love this question. I love these two questions. Tell me where we're better than we think we are. That's that was right. a great question I used to like to ask. Tell me where we're better than we, than we actually realize we are. But also, tell me where we're not as good as you think we should be. And I found that when you go in like that, there's an old saying that says words that are spoken from the heart enter the heart of all who hear them. And I found that like customers, they, they picked you like the one you're talking about with the largest Burger King, uh, they, they have, they need you to be successful. So they're going to give you like unconditional truth because they need you to know. And it's also, I think it's pretty impressive. People know when you come from the outside, they know you may not know exactly what's going on in their situation, but the fact that you're coming in to understand versus tell them, you know, what, who you are and where you've been and what you're going to bring to the table. I've just found that those elite leaders get that really well. No, I totally agree, and I and I think it's funny because the these customers from our from our standpoint, the ones we've had for a long time, our technology for them, and you guys know this well. It's always like, are you must have or are you nice to have? And in our case, and in, in their case specifically, we're absolutely must have, right? So it's got to work. It's got to be you know twenty four seven. And our technology enables people. You know, it's a software platform that enables people to 
look at video and look at data um, and really get a sense of um, what's happening in their business, right? It's, it's all about video surveillance, video analytics, and figuring out what's going on in you know the quick serve restaurant industry. And so there's tons of things that happen in these restaurants all day long, and they really need to know, you know, did somebody slip and fall? Did somebody rob a store? Like what's going on with the drive-through? All these things that happen in these technology plays is really important. So we are a core part of their daily, you know, workflow. And so that's where I, I wanted to figure out, you know, like you just said, you know, wh where do we think we're really good? Are we, where are we falling down? Are we doing the right things with support? Um, you know, all those things um, are critical because again, these customers are, you know, form our basis of our core, you know, MRR kind of year to date kind of yearly kind of revenue. And how do we make sure we stay close to these customers? Because they're massive references for us. Yeah. Now, John, when you go in the CRO or you don't have that long of a time to put your hands around the forecast. And then, you know, every quarter we have to forecast the business. So when you think about forecasting, are there any lessons learned or gotchas that you look out for when, you, when you're forecasting? Well, that's pretty timely because we just ended uh, 2023. So I, I think, uh, <laughs> so, so when I came into the business, we, um, yeah, I think that historically the company had not been uh, great at forecasting, didn't have a lot of great process in place, even though it's a decent sized business. So we put a bunch of uh, new process in place and, you know, we, we, we've, we've now rolling out MedPick as we speak. If you can, I'm sure that's uh, uh, good to your heart there. Um, and I've used it in other companies as well. So I think that's just, you know, and anything has to work as a, as part of our process. And I think that, you know, just putting something in was a good idea. So we made, we made our numbers in Q2, made our numbers in Q3 and in Q4, a few deals wound up slipping uh, into 2024, and I think the the deal management struck the the deal management part of uh, of forecasting is critical. And I think like a lot of SaaS businesses were back end loaded, so there's a lot more pressure on Q4. And so the idea of really ensuring that the basic blocking and tackling of is somebody on vacation or not, is somebody that needs to sign this contract, are they around, are they in the Caribbean, what's going on with them, um, is something that we probably missed in a couple of deal situations for, for you know, this past quarter. So um, basic stuff, but are we asking all those really good questions? Are, is our champion aligned to, to the timing, right? I, I think it's the champion stuff that is part of MedPick to me is is so critical uh, when, when you think about um, is somebody mirror, is there a mirror image of your salesperson on the other side at the customer that absolutely is aligned on the timing? And Let I me ask you a question. Sure. Sorry, John. Sorry. Go ahead and finish. Sorry about that. No, I'm just saying, I think that's just, it's just so important when you think about it, when you're a sale, when I'm asking a salesperson, when's this deal going to happen? What's oh, going to happen in December? Okay, great. Yeah. So is the other person on the other side in full agreement? Where are they? Can I, can I pick up the phone and ask them that question? And it's just another way to figure out is the deal, is it truly real or not? And is the timing real? So you brought up the concept of slip deals and I've been I've been really, I, I didn't do a good job, Johnny Mac, and getting our uh, our guest to talk about this, but can you tell me your philosophy on slip deals in, in your organizations? Are you allowed to forecast them the next quarter? Why or why not? So in our case, ironically, so I think the key thing is for me is on a slip deal is, okay, is the deal gone away to somebody else or is it just slip because of timing and because of other things that, you know, there's probably a myriad of excuses people can use, but I, I think so the answer for me is yes but it's going to get triple inspected before it goes back into a forecast. That's for sure to make sure that, you know, the slippage was literally the two or three reasons because somebody was, you know, out of the office, asleep at the wheel, whatever the, whatever the reason was um, just to make sure that if we're going to reforecast it again, 
that it's absolutely you know past all the all the uh, the red face test, if you will, of of questioning to make sure that because you can't do it twice, right? You can't do it twice. So and, and, and I, I think that's something you know. Again, slip deals happen. It's all it's part of part of the process. But just try not to repeat that again, and make sure that uh, you t- continue to you know ABC always be closing on the process. You know. Well, I saw some amazing statistics on slip deals. This is why I'm asking. Uh, it's something around 80 to 90% of slip deals do not happen the next quarter. Right. And when I looked into that, I was like, well, what, what is the reason behind that? And I started to dig into it a little bit. I looked at the slip deals and what I found is especially companies that have like the hockey sticks that, you know, at the end of the quarter and there's so much pressure, I call it like building up cholesterol. So all this cholesterol gets built up at the end of the you know, at the end of the quarter and the deal slips and both parties just kind of separate and go to neutral corners for a little bit. And they just take a deep breath. And normally that's at least two weeks before we're talking to each other again, because we're mad at each other. Typically something, something happened. We wanted something. You said you were going to do something. So two weeks is gone. And then the cholesterol, you still got to get through the cholesterol. You got to build up the, the momentum. What I found is they don't slip for one quarter. They slip for, they slip to the two quarters. Does that make sense? Has that been your experience? Well, I mean, I, I think in, in other companies, the answer would be, would be yes to that for sure. I mean, here I've been, I have not been around long enough in this particular business to say that's true or not. I think, at least in our case, in this past Q4, the few deals that slipped are all very much alive and look look good for this quarter, right? So I think that's the key thing. Um, but but I, like I said, I think it's just one where, in the past, um, you know, again, I think it depends on the reason why a deal slipped. But for me personally, it just it just comes down to okay, if something doesn't go as planned. You've got to double down on all the all the normal kind of forecasts and deal management stuff you normally do, and just get other sets of eyes on it. Make sure you feel good about it. Make sure there's nothing we're missing. And um, again, I, you know, this stuff happens. It's natural. I mean, predicting human behavior, I think, is uh, has been tough from the very beginning of my career to now. Right, you can never get it perfect, um, but you got to just get better and get better and keep improving as. Our friend Bill Belichick always says, right? So but you can't I, leave I, the slip <laughs> deal in the number, right? So, like, if you slip right. a deal. And then you have your quota, let's just say for for grins is 100K, let's say, and you slip a deal. I'm assuming that you don't allow people, and I want everybody to listen to this in the audience because your bosses are doing you a favor when they do this because they want you to be able to make up your number. You don't let people account that as part of their number. So they need to... They need to forecast 100K the next quarter. That deal that they have is above and beyond or you'll never catch up. And John and John, I know that we know this and it seems like simple, but so many companies allow slip deals to be counted as the in the number, if that it's, makes sense. No, you're absolutely correct. And in fact, what we're doing actually for the deals that slipped in our past Q4 is that gets tacked onto the Q1 yes. number. So for sure, oh, so that's a- absolutely happening, right? So in fact... Um, uh, that that's one way to absolutely you know confirm it's going to happen. So it's like whatever the number wasn't, whatever the budget was in twenty four, that you tack that on to Q one and make sure that happens. And so that's certainly um, I totally agree with that. And you you can't let people out of the gate. I mean, if a rep is on quota and the response from bringing a number and they give you a forecast and they miss it, they're going to make that number up for that yeah. quarter, find a way, um, or certainly you know make it happen the next quarter. Again, we're part of what we're building here as well. And and I've tried to do it in other companies. Is a performance-based culture where people feel like there's some accountability to this too, because obviously, you know, I'm asking the questions because I need to be accountable to the board, and the reps are need to be accountable to their leadership and all that good stuff. So you know, it runs up, it runs down, and and the same accountability I've got to have, um, you know, with, with everybody again, up and down the ladder, so that it's not 
just me asking questions or the reps and leaders. It's all of us that are in this together. So let's make sure we, you know, shape things properly. Now, John, when you're forecasting, um, what I've found is a lot of times reps are gaming the CRM system or Salesforce.com. And the data in there may not, even though you're trying to, you know, have exit criteria for each stage of the sales process and you're trying to hold everybody accountable to put, be accurate with putting the data in, you're just going to find that some reps are going to game the system. Either they have a big deal and they're putting it in stage two when it's like three weeks to go, or they don't have a big deal and they put it in stage four, you know, and they're saying it's going to happen. And then, you know, it becomes like you and John were just talking about, it becomes a slip deal. How much do you pay attention to what's in the CRM system and how much do you pay attention to what your reps and leaders are saying when you finally have to forecast the John Donnelly forecast? That's right. Well, I think at the end of the day, it's all it's all about doing that kind of diligence, right, internally to figure out. Because obviously the CRM for us is our is our main source of truth. And so... Uh, we've been very, very diligent about making sure Salesforce is as clean as possible. I think in every company I've been in, um, and ironically, there's one quick story. When I was at Cisco, and we had Salesforce, of course, but John Chambers uh, liked Excel. So I'm like, you're kidding me, right? We're going to do Excel. We're going to use Excel reporting for John's meetings, and we're going to use Salesforce for everything else. So he was old school, and obviously, uh, you can't argue with the uh, the results. But um, uh, But that being said... Um, Salesforce and HubSpot for us are our two sources of truth for, for one, one's for marketing, one's for, one for obviously operationalizing opportunities. And that data has to be critically correct. So we make sure that's happening and make sure that the reps are um, you know, using it as a true workflow tool every day, not as a reporting tool every couple of weeks. So really get in there, accurate data, accurate information on contacts, the usual stuff everybody talks about. But you know that's an ongoing drumbeat to make sure that's successful every week and every month. That's not something that's easy. Again, we're, we're, you're trying to push people to do things that they normally don't like to do because salespeople don't like to do that. They just never do. So we push that hard. And I think when we do um, you know, a plan and reviews and account reviews, et cetera, you know, again, you're just asking a lot of questions all the time. And I, I, my wife would agree. I think I, I do ask a lot of questions, right? So I think that, that um, I, try to do, I, try, I try to do that as much as I can and and figure out like what are the risks? What are the worst things that can happen, right? Try to really figure out like what's because I, I think once you've done this a while, I can typically look at something and say, okay, what are the what are the chances of this not happening? And really go through that with a rep because a lot of the reps, as you guys probably know, when you're close to a deal, sometimes it's hard to see what's really going on. It just is. And so, yes. have they really talked to all the people around the business, the other influencers of the deal? Do they really know what's going on? And um, and sometimes you know it's just uh, it's that extra set of eyes to try to come in and say, hey. Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? To help make sure that if we're going to put a piece of business on the forecast, it's been vetted as much as possible. And I just think it's something that is that relentless pursuit of those of those answers is important. And, and if reps can't answer it, um, and if there's any doubt, you can't forecast it. Just can't. I want to go back to uh, slip deals and ask both of you: What do you think really are the really are the top two to three reasons why a deal slips? Was it ever really a deal? Do they really have a champion? Did they ever get to the economic buyer? Did they ever really quantify the pain for the customer? What is it really when we're really honest about it? What do you and in our experience, what do you really think the top two to three reasons are why a deal slips? A lot of times I think a deal slipped because it never was a deal. The sales okay. rep stood up in front of the sales force and thought, 
I have to basically forecast a couple deals here and I don't have anything. So they tell you all the reasons why they think it's a deal, you know, and it never was a deal. And the honest people tell you it's going to slip with two weeks to go and kind of the dishonest people (laughs) let it slip with two hours or two days to go. But what are the real reasons why a deal slips? What do you think it really is? What are the top three reasons? You want to go first? Yeah, I'll I'll take a crack at it. For me, yeah. it's it's always been it's always been kind of the same, and it's even highlighted now. The number one reason I think when would deals slip is they haven't attached themselves to the biggest business issue facing the customer, so they haven't been able to rise above the noise. And I'm seeing it big now, like two 2023 Silicon Valley Bank you know, tech industry, um, just everybody. It was like, it was almost like the pandemic again. But what I found was, is that people, they got a little rusty, you know, people had budgets and it's in the budget and blah, blah, blah. But a lot, a lot was in the budget last year and not a lot's in the budget this year for some companies. And so I found that just attaching yourself to the biggest business issue. The other thing that I find is just is really, and if you're honest with yourselves, are the people that didn't do a reverse timeline with the champion. I'm not talking about doing a reverse timeline on your own and just saying this has to happen, this has to happen, this has to happen, but you actually whiteboard it with the champion and you move and you start with the end in mind. 100% of the time, somebody or something will get highlighted that we've never talked about in the sales cycle at all. There's a person, there's a decision maker, there's a process. And a lot of times champions just didn't share it with us because they didn't believe it was relevant. And all you got to do is ask some questions. So when's the last time, you know, that you got a deal done? When's the last time you bought something where that person didn't have to be involved? Well, no, he has to be involved. She has to be involved every time. And they're like, holy smokes, man, we haven't, haven't talked to that person. So I find that those two things are big ones. First, attaching yourself to the biggest business issues. Third is you, you, you miss out on decision process in, in, in medic and med pick. And then, uh, excuse me, the third one I would say is you just didn't, you did not do enough to differentiate yourself from the competition. When you really look at the decision criteria in MedPick, it is not influenced in your favor. You cannot see your differentiation in there. And that is for sure. I mean, you hope a deal slips when when it when there's decision criteria is not in your favor and it doesn't flip to somebody else. So just off the top of my head, those are those are kind of three. How about you, John Donnelly? Yeah, I mean a couple of things I think about. I, I think one thing that people always forget to ask with the champion is that okay. Can you explain to me what what's the last thing you bought yeah. from a vendor and how did you go through that process? Walk me through it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a simple thing that I think people just forget to do to make sure that that person, especially if they're, let's say, let's say they're new, they may not have a clue about how to buy something internally. Um, so from our standpoint, a couple of deals, I think that was a factor for us, number one. And number two, I, I think that... Um, you know, I, I think ultimately it's about all about like when we think about the timeline of a deal, and I talked about this earlier... You know, does that does that champion? Let's assume the champion has bought something. They've told you how to do it. You know, you, and you mentioned this as well. I think that timeline, that that kind of reverse timeline. Of, okay, I want I'm going to forecast this deal to close in December. Okay, so walk me back. What what steps have to happen? Is that really well documented? And a lot of reps, hey, they're, they're in sales, right? They can sell people internally as well, right? So I think that's part of the problem too. And salespeople love to be sold too, right? So that's I mean, I'll, I'll all day long listen to salespeople trying to sell me something because it's fun. But at the end of the day, you know, you got to know that um, 
the timeline is aligned. And it, again, it seems like a basic blocking attack, but so many reps fail to make that choice and really understand, okay, again, if, if you as a leader can't pick up the phone and call a champion and say, hey, you know, so-and-so said the deal is going to close in December. Can you, just, can, you, can you verify that? Can you make sure that that deal you know, is the same feeling for you on your side? You know, what are we missing? What has to happen? And that's something that we're, again, this is hot off the, off the presses for us. For a few deals, it didn't happen. The good news is we didn't lose to any competitors. I think that's the good news, right? So, and we didn't lose to no decision. We just lost to the timing. So I think um, in one case, and this is also true, I think, especially if customers are doing a pilot, in our case, they're paid pilots. So if you have paid pilots with the right, exact, precise success criteria in place and agreed to, um, you know, have we met that criteria? Do we have that back? And I, I and this is probably old school, but I'll say to the, my rep, can you get that back in writing from the customer or the prospect in this case, that they've agreed that we've met the criteria? Because if that's the case, you, you should have a deal, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't be doing a paid pilot where it's a surprise. And I think in our case, that, that that's that's happened a couple of times where the pilot data that had been delivered back to the customer wasn't quite what they expected. It wasn't quite matching the criteria. So there's more work to be done. And so in one case, for example, a deal, we did a pilot, it was pretty good, but the data wasn't perfect. And so they weren't getting quite enough actionable insights that they expected from the pilot. So we need to go back and do some more work there. We'll get it, but there's more work to be done. And so that's, an, that's a perfect example of a deal where we're going to forecast it You know, in March of this quarter. There's more work to be done, which gives us 30 day, 60 days really to do the work um, and reforecast it. So I think it's, again, it's... Um, those are some of the things I think that are, are important issues. And again, at least we're, you know, from our standpoint, even though the market's relatively competitive, we're not losing anybody right now. We're losing probably more to ourselves of not, you know, really managing deals at the end of a quarter sure. at, the, at the end. Well, that it's more us than another company that's beating us out, which I think, you know, is good because we've got some very unique technology that, uh, that people need. How do you guys feel about this one? Uh, I used to love <laughs> testing champions and when you test a champion in the forecast uh you go to your rep and you say i'm going to call the champion and i am going to give them a scenario and what i would always do is i'd give the customer a scenario and i knew they'd give me who the economic buyer was they'd give me who the next step in the process is whatever so i said hey will you just do me a favor we were talking earlier this morning I know Susie has been working with you on this opportunity. Thank you for uh, uh, for working so hard with us. I was just thinking about this this morning. What if the CFO or the economic buyer, whoever it is, I know who the person we need to talk about. What if they came in right now and said, for example, for me, for my company, why force management? And I just tell the, I just ask the champion, just go, just go, just go ahead. Tell me why force management or why tick or why whatever and what i love is you'll see the default response will be well we love john donnelly we love his company they you know they've been very responsive to us and the pilot and blah 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 and i'm like okay not for nothing mr and mrs champion but remember i said we're talking to the economic buyer we're talking to the financial person so the relationships are important and i really oh by the way we love Susie too so thank you for that we love yeah. Susie. you're not making fun of anybody but you're really getting and then you say um could you just focus a little bit more on why us and when they struggle you let them off the hook and you say, hey, I, I'm 
pretty sure I knew that was going to happen. I'm sorry. We did it this morning and we didn't know what the answers were going to be for you. So would you allow us to kind of, and Johnny, I love the way you talk about this. Uh, it's it's kind of the three whys or what have you. Would you mind if we kind of remind you kind of what we've been talking about? Like these are the business issues that we're, you're facing. And these are the technical capabilities that you said were required. And here's how you're going to measure success. And here's how we do it. Here's how we do it differently or better. And here's where we've done it before. I call it like the 10 finger presentation. And so many times John Donnelly, uh, a champion would go, can I, you know, a lot of times I would just show it in a slide or, or something simple. And they'd say, Hey, either, can you go slow and do that again? Or can I have that presentation? And there you wind up creating champion decks, but yes. just that little strategy, that little strategy of, of getting a customer to tell you why you and Johnny, you talk about the three whys all the time. Why buy anything? Why buy us? Why buy now? Or why buy, why buy anything? Johnny, what is it? Why buy now? Why buy anything? Why do I have to buy? I think that's important because that speaks more towards solving a really big issue. And it goes back to John's point of a need to have versus a nice to have. So it's why do I have to buy? Then why do I have to buy from you? Meaning you're differentiated. Your differentiation aligns to the pains that I'm having as to why I have to buy. And now why do I have to buy now? That's yeah. right. Why is it so say, urgent? Yeah. Where is the urgency? Why yeah, does customer why? have to do it now? Why? Yeah, right. I mean, why that, are, that's why always why the now? big that's gotcha. Right. That's right. No, I agree. And I think, like I said earlier at the very beginning, I think um, the reps that get you know more people involved and more people involved in a deal, you, know, you get more perspective on something, right? And I think if a, if a rep is holding a deal very close to the chest and not really willing to get other people involved in the business, I always worry about that as well because yeah, yeah you want to expand, time. you know, you want to align people properly with the execs or whatever. Um, and I, I don't think enough reps do that. And I, I, and I tell reps, like, if you're quiet, I don't hear much about what you're doing. I'm worried. And if you're not getting more people involved, I'm also worried because ultimately you're trying to do it all by yourself and you know, you're going to, you're going to succeed or fail on your own. And obviously if it's failure, it's not great. And you, and you, by the time you've figured it out, it's too late to get the deal back. And so what I've tried to say to people is, listen, let's get everybody aligned here where, and especially, you know, in, in 2024, I'm going to talk to, you know, certainly all the big deals that, that, you know, the economic buyer for every single transaction that's forecasted to make sure that we're aligned. So we don't have any misses. Right. So that's really important. But I think ultimately, again, you're always going to have things that don't go well, but ultimately you don't want to repeat things you did before. Right. You want to learn from it and uh, and get better. at it's something you, do, you didn't do well. And that's just super critical for us as we are looking to to grow, um, you know, way more in 24. So we got to make sure we have a good handle on, the deals and align those, you know, people kind of internally. And again, it's back to, you know, and you said this great, John, too, in terms of the, if you ask a champion, like, you know, about, about, you know, in our case, DTIQ, what are they going to say? Is it must have? When do they need the, do they, do they need it? What is it going to do for them? And how is their life going to be better with us versus without? And if they can't articulate that, you know, do you really have a deal? What I love no, what we're no, talking because- about here. Yeah. yeah. What I love about what we're talking about here is John Donnelly, you just, you just laid down a nugget. I want to make sure the audience yeah. picks up on if you're listening to this podcast, you have to ensure that you are going to be as comfortable and as vulnerable as possible with your leadership team. <clears throat> you want this feedback. You want a role play. You want to find out where the broken bones are. You want them to help you get unstuck. And there's an old saying 
that I used to love, somebody shared it with me in a forecast session one time, is that every slipped or lost deal is an orphan, meaning nobody's taking responsibility for it. And every successful deal has a hundred, you know, Johnny, remember the, how many sellers did we say was on, you know, Caterpillar? There were 15 yeah. people and there really was only, you know, a couple, but everybody and their brother and sister was a part of that deal. So if you don't want, and there's, you know, this That's is really- the parametric deals you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And you also, you don't want to lose a loan. Like we, I, I found that really respectful when leaders would look at people in a forecast session and say, Hey, I'm trying to help you. Don't lose a loan. And uh, it's powerful. No. And I, I learned that as a sales guy growing up, you know, starting out as a, I'll make a little funny story here. I mean, my wife and I met years ago um, as at the time, I think we were called inside salespeople and our job at the time was to pick up the phone and get people to come to a seminar. I mean, we're talking a long time ago, right? So you, kind of, so you kind of learned no such thing as a webinar back then, but you what you kind of learned kind of how to how to go through this process. And it's uh, you know, it, it's critical. It really is in terms of the um you know, the, the sales capabilities there. But don't you think the question, have you spoken to the economic <laughs> buyer, is just <laughs> the one that stops everybody right in their tracks. And then from there, sure. you can tell. It's all downhill from there, or everything has to have gone right in order for them to have had that meeting. That's right. I That's find right. that once you ask that question, the can of worms is now opened up and that you either see a really good deal or you see all the things that they did wrong before that step. That's right. That's right. You know, because if they didn't do that, they didn't get the champion. If they didn't get the champion, they didn't do good discovery and scoping and find the pain and all the other things that we know they should do the right way. So that one question, did you meet the economic buyer? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, Johnny, both, both well, I love it when they tell you that they've been calling on the account for eight months. They have a champion. How long do you think you've had the champion? Oh, I've had the champion four or five months. And you really think you have a champion? Yes. Okay. And then have you met the economic buyer? No. That's right. You don't have a champion. That's right. That's right. That's right. You have no, no deal. Else. And you don't yeah. no deal. <laughs> right. Hey, John Donnelly, um, yeah. you, I've heard you talk about storytelling and the importance of storytelling in sales campaigns versus, I think you call it, you know, slide death. Yes. Would you kind of give us your philosophy on what do you mean by that storytelling versus slide death? Sure. I, I think one of, one of the things, and I, and I probably should mention this earlier, is when I came into the business was try to figure out um, from the customer perspective, our customer perspective, uh, what were the best use cases? What were the best stories in terms of success of the platform? You know, what, what good stories were there across all of our multiple brands out there where people had had, had nothing, brought DTIQ in and had really great success with it? And what was that story behind that? And I find in our industry and certainly in other companies as well, other, other industries, People love to hear what their peers are doing and how well they're doing, whether it's a, you're, you're at a trade show, you're at an event, whatever it is, people love to talk about their successes and how they've had them. And I think, especially as it relates to our kind of our, our, our ideal customer profile, um, you know, in this space, they really care about what, of course, the rest of the brand is doing with technology and other brands do care. So if you're talking to Chick-fil-A, ironically, they care about what people that you know, Denny's or Burger King or McDonald's, or you pick pick your favorite QSR, are doing in technology days, right? So I think ultimately, when when we go through our when we built our sales training and onboarding for the team, it was all about giving the reps good stories to tell 
prospects, right? Because ultimately, anybody can get on a Zoom or, or WebEx or what have you and throw slides up and go through the normal stuff people do. And I think, again, there's a place for that, for sure. But I think people are much more ready to consume now, like I mentioned earlier, you know, video technology and things, you know, video stories. So we're building a lot of um, customer referrals on video that we can share with people because it's easy to see, easy to consume. Um, and I think ultimately it's just, you know, really, again, if the reps can tell a few good stories, it's way better than, again, PowerPointing people to death. I just think it's been done for way too long. People are beyond that. It's the same way, if you think about email marketing, same idea. There's just so many ounce email flying around Yes, it's a necessary evil, but you know you better think of, you better you better have multiple channels of marketing to, to generate leads, whether it's through customer expansion or new growth. And video technology has been great for us. And again, storytelling. So a lot of what we're going to do um, and we are doing is ensuring that the reps have that um, you know kind of the 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 hours and the quiver, so to speak, to really tell good stories um, to their prospects and customers and explain how others are having success with the platform and how they're generating. ROI, whatever it, whatever it happens to be, using the platform. I love this I because it's really important. Sorry, Johnny. When, especially when they can tell a story that aligns to the same issues that that customer had, you know. So they're t- because I found that a lot of customers sometimes they're reluctant to talk about all their issues because they think they're the only one. They those issues they have are very unique. Yet when you're a salesperson, you've been going around to so many customers, you realize all these customers typically have this, if they have the same use case, they typically have the same problems. Mm-hmm. But that's not how a lot of customers see it. So when you can align a really good story of another customer that had the same issues as this customer that's having, and then the great outcome, as you described, John, I think that's just so powerful. Yeah. And this- like I said, sorry, go ahead, John. You go ahead. No, sorry. I just I just want to make a point here because I want the audience to listen to this because it's a huge nugget. Um, if you have a deal right now on the forecast and you're using Medic or MedPick or whatever, most people don't really understand, in my opinion, that, that Medic is the M and Medic is really twofold. It's how is the customer going to measure success and what examples do you have of companies out there that have done similar things. So I always say, you know, give me a proof point of, you know, X, Y, Z. A lot of people say bank of America and I'll be like, okay, what about bank of America? Well, they're a customer of ours. Yeah. I understand that. What problem did you solve? The lowest common denominator is not the industry. It's the problem. Absolutely. So, so what problems did you solve? How specifically did you solve them? How did you solve them differently or better than anybody else that was out there? And what happened to them? What happened to risk? What happened to revenue? What happened to cost? And I got to tell you, if you're listening right now and you have an opportunity that's forecasted for this corner, quarter, you have to be able to tell me a story and go learn the story. Don't just say Coca-Cola or Bank of America or Walmart or what have you. What happened? What's the story? It's really good hygiene. No, I totally agree. And I, and I think it's, um, you know, in our case, it's funny when you think about ROI and and what people are looking to do, ultimately, and this is true really of the whole whole software as a service industry, you know, you're, you're basically providing this platform for people to provide actionable insights back to the business, right? That they probably didn't see before for whatever reason. And in our case, that's what we do. We provide actionable insights, but we can actually make those changes. The customer has to do, do something internally to actually take the actions and make something you know workable for them, and I think and so the whole idea of storytelling is that can we tell can we tell um, 
our prospects and customers from a sales perspective, what those stories are, what, what, what insights do we provide? And then what did the customer do to get to measurable ROI and measurable analytics that they didn't have before by using our platform? And I think that's something that's so important. And whenever I talk to customers now, it's always, okay, you know, tell me what we've done to make, why, why, we, why are you different now using DTIQ? Like, what's different about it? I'm like, I want to know what that is and why. And because ultimately, you know, of course, not every customer can speak publicly, but I'm always looking for the next referral, the next customer that can speak on, on our behalf to say, hey, you know, we brought DTIQ in before. Before we had DTIQ, we had these problems. We brought it in and now we don't. And we saved money. We have we were able to you know, see something and do something kind of thing with video technology. Um, it's critical. And I think if you can't do that as a sales rep and articulate that, you're really missing it. Because anybody, again, can you know show up and, and throw up, so to speak, with slides and, and throw things at people. But ultimately, you've got to be able to articulate what the value prop truly is. Yeah, I'd like to just make a comment on that last part. For me, you know, there's an, there's there's another saying. Sorry about all the sayings, but what <laughs> I, I love, hear, I love them. I like them. I like yeah, them. Okay, okay, good. So what I hear, I forget. What I see, I remember. But what I feel, I never forget. It'll last a lifetime. So I encourage people when you tell the story to the extent that it's part of your personality. And I don't think it has to be a, you know, you don't have to be a grandiose person or what have you, but you got to get people emotionally connected to their own story. So let's take another example of medic. And I look at the eye. And when I look at the eye that I ask people, I'm saying, okay, so what, what's the identification of pain? And John Donnelly, they always give me like this technical answer. And they always give me like, you know, these, and, and they can't do this and it's not fast enough and it's not, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then I always say, so what? Like, you got to ask yourself, how big is the problem? How big is the problem? What are the negative consequences if it doesn't happen? And then when you experience that yourself and you believe emotionally, you can start asking questions that get to people's emotion about walk me through the feedback that you got from the CIO when you guys didn't deliver on that, on that, you know, workload for the third straight month. Walk me through what what that feedback was. And so you get people emotionally connected to the problem and it it becomes their own problem. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Oh, I think yeah. I think ultimately that that emotional this is true for salespeople too. The, the emotional intelligence on a deal is really important to figure out, yeah. you know, what do you what do you when you're talking to a prospect and they're about to buy your software, like what do they feel about, you know, bringing you in and making changes? In fact, I had a I had a call the other day with a customer in Europe, um, well, I can't name yet. They're a customer, but they were trying to do a deal with them. And um, they basically, you know, their entire emotional tone has changed in the last couple of weeks on talking about DTIQ as a company and and and, and doing this particular project. I think that like the air came out of the balloon, all the you know, posturing that was going on for a while is gone. Um, they're asking all the right questions around operationalizing it. They're, they're using the right, you know, kind of... Uh, when we do this, when we do that, kind of the, all the all the things you want to kind of listen for, and it was it's subtle, but when it happens, it's really obvious because ultimately, all of a sudden, there's no more of those. That's no more game playing. It's like we're we're not really doing that back and forth and all that, you know, gesturing and, and sword fighting. It's all of a sudden, hey, we're trying to do something together here successfully, and I think a lot of reps do miss that at times. But but if you don't get to that point where there is that emotional buy-in. Um, you know, again, I, I still think it's back to, you know, doing deal diligence. Do you really have a deal? Cause some, does someone really care about it? 
the kid. Yeah. 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 So many nuggets here, Johnny Mac. Yeah. Unbelievable. Because an hour went by already. Just blew by, dude. I just looked at the clock and said, what the heck? I still have more questions I want to ask John, but it's been an hour and that's what we asked them for. We're gonna, so. we'll have, let's have him back, dude. Yeah. Happy to do it. Happy to do it. And obviously we can talk more about Michigan next time. <laughs> yeah, buddy. That'll take it. That'll take an hour. My eyes oh my have glory, John. That's right. Oh my God. <laughs> so happy to see. You. I mean, I've been to so many games over the years and finally that happens. It's just, it was so much fun. So much fun. Oh, so fun. Well, John, thank you so much for joining John and I appreciate it. Appreciate uh, really spending the time with you guys. Happy to do it again. And uh, obviously really excited about uh, hopefully people got a few nuggets here listening. And uh, you know, it's, for me, it's always fun just to talk about this stuff. I've been doing this for a long time. Love it. And uh, you know, you got to, Get out of bed every day and like what you're doing. I definitely enjoy it. So it's fun. Well done. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, John Donnelly. Thank you, Mr. Kaplan. And thanks everyone for listening to another episode of the Revenue Builders Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Be sure to check us out at forcemanagement.com. 